Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Holy smokes, it has been literally four months, four mo- five months. Been a long time. Since you've been here in the studio. Yeah. I forgot, uh, I said something nasty to you when you walked in, <laughs> but I forgot what you look like. I'm just going to leave it go at that. Thank you. No. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. You know, it's a treat to have you back. I hate phone calls. Yeah, I. It, it's hard to carry on a, really kind of a conversation or a story. A rapport. A re- yeah, that's there what it is. Go. Yeah. yeah. Now, last week we had an interesting story, but what do you got for me this week? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, the Dakota area, and we're going to talk about some of the visitors there, some of the people, but we're going to talk about about three of the women that are pretty famous that uh, are part of history of that area. I know one of them. I'll bet you $100. Okay, I'll bet you do, too. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. And they, well, were, they were kind of, um, may I say, shady ladies. No, no. No? No. Nope. You, you, I should have bet you. <laughs> you should have, because I thought you were going the other way, no, like the no, Wild Bill Hickok no. type thing. Nope. Oh. Two of the most recognized women in the Old West are Sacagawea and, oh. and Elizabeth Custer. Oh, see, you got me. I did. Yeah, you owe you me $100. I didn't bet that. <laughs> and besides that, you take a check? <laughs> <laughs> no. So here we have Sacagawea and Elizabeth Custer, and both of them have stories tied to the history of western North Dakota. And their stories are just two of a lot of those that are uh, t- uh, connected to the Great Plains. Uh, so we know Captain William Clark and Meriwether Lewis with the Corps of Discovery. They started building a three-sided fort near the Missouri River in November 2nd, 1804, and that's where they stayed throughout that winter. Okay, Now, their post, they called it Fort Mandan, and it's about a dozen miles from present-day Washburn, North Dakota, mm-hmm. and it was downstream from villages occupied by the Mandan and the Hidatsa Indians. Now, at Mandan, uh, Lewis wrote in his journal on February 11th, 1805, one of the wives of Charbonneau was delivered of a fine boy. This wife of Toussaint Charbonneau, the interpreter Lewis and Clark hired to accompany them upriver later in the spring, was a woman of many names known as Sacagawea. Uh, again, I, I'm going to bet that almost everybody's got to have heard of Sacagawea. What tribe was she from? Uh, was she a man then? No, she was uh, kidnapped. I think I'll get to that. Okay. Uh, Sorry. Shoshone, I think. I see. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, she was uh, uh, Lemhi Shosh- Shoshone. I see. Uh, but she'd been uh, kidnapped by the Hidatsa raiders near the Three Forks of the Missouri and was later traded to Charbonneau, a French-Canadian trapper. Now, uh, in North Dakota, they pronounce it... Uh, Sacagawea, like with a K. With a K. Yeah, uh, but we know it as Sacagawea. Now, that's interesting that she was given to or forced to be with Charbonneau. Yeah, or, you know, traded or... You know, what's interesting right there, Doc, is part of Dr. History. Do you remember the uh, seven-part series, How the West Was Won? That movie? Yeah. Uh-huh. In the beginning, wasn't the fur trader that was in the canoe and he ended up with an Indian squaw, wasn't his name Charbonneau? You know, I don't remember. It's been so long since I, I think it that. was. But Charbonneau, uh, and of course they had this son uh, while uh, this boy. And I've done a story on him. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, at Fort Mandan, 
Now, during the winter of 1804-05, Lewis and Clark and their men stayed close to Fort Mandan, uh, but they did visit regularly the Mandan village, and they were looking for information about what they would find upriver and when they headed out in the spring, and they knew that Charbonneau spoke a variety of languages and would be helpful as they set off, and Sacagawea was often with him in the quarters at Fort Mandan, and no doubt Lewis and Clark realized that her knowledge of the territory uh, they would be traveling would be very useful on on this mission, on this Corps of Discovery, and her fluency in the Shoshone language and her ability to communicate with Charbonneau in the Hidatsa uh, were reason enough to take the young woman with them uh, that next spring to travel the Missouri River in their boats and, and on foot. So that's kind of how she played into that, uh, that whole thing. And like I say, at this time, she had this little baby. You oh, know? Uh, is that Charbonneau's baby? Yeah, Charbonneau yeah, and her, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember his first name. Uh, oh, it's Jean-Baptiste. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau was the son. And there's a whole story about him I did a while yeah, back on I him. That. Yeah, but the location of Fort Mandan is not known for certain. It most likely now is under the waters of the Missouri River, they think. But they say visitors can step into the areas where the Mandans and other Missouri River tribes lived. The Knife River villages, which is now a historical site, are an hour northwest of Bismarck, and one of the Knife River locations is Awatixia. Village, also called Sakakawea Village, and it has many as 60 earth lodges, and the depressions of sites of Mandan lodges are still visible. Now, I've never been there, and, you know, maybe some of our uh, listeners have been to this place and can tell me more about it. Well, all I'm going to say quickly is that isn't it a shame that we lost that part of history with the uh, burying or the uh, basic underwater Fort Mandan? And the same is true of my hometown. Oh. Fort Atkinson yeah. it was, was underwater in a swampy area. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. So preserving, to me, is, is really, really important. Oh, you yeah. Know? But uh, at the north, they have this North Dakota Heritage Center in Bismarck, and you can visit Fort Abraham Lincoln, and it overlooks uh, a place called Onaslant Village, which was a Mandan campsite that includes, there again, reconstructed earth lodges. And the Mandans occupied the site on the flats along the Missouri River. They figure clear from 1575 to 1781, so several hundred years. Now, Fort McKeon was built nearby in 1872, and the following year, a cavalry post was constructed, and the combined installations were renamed Fort Abraham Lincoln when Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer arrived as the commander of the new post. He brought his lovely wife, Elizabeth, and they they called her Libby. Elizabeth, they called her Libby. And the post quickly became one of the largest and most important on the Northern Plains. So she was right there amongst the whole thing. Mm. So Custer and the 7th Cavalry, they drilled on the parade ground while Libby entertained in the commander's house. She had family, including a sister-in-law, Margaret Calhoun, uh, in addition to George, his two brothers, Tom and Boston, and uh, Custer, and brother-in-law, James Calhoun, Calhoun, and a nephew they called Audie Reed, and they all served in the Army and were stationed at Fort Lincoln. I see. 
Now, and we know that George's brothers, uh, I think they both died at the battle. I know Tom did. I can't They remember. were with him at the Little Big One. Yeah, I, 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 I know Tom did. I'm not sure about but Boston. But they were real proud to be a member of that family. <laughs> yeah. So the 7th Cavalry marched away from the fort on May 17, 1876. Uh, the departure was impressive. Uh, a dozen companies of troops, Indian scouts, 150 wagons carrying equipment and supplies strung out probably two miles long. Can wow, you imagine that? Yeah. Wow. And with soldiers, civilians, Teamsters, Indian scouts, the group numbered about 1,200 men and 1,700 animals, including a herd of cattle, extra horses and mules, and with the other women left behind at the fort, Libby, Elizabeth Custer, and Margaret Calhoun watched until they disappeared A into herd the distance. of cattle? Yeah, well, you know, to feed the, the men. I know, but you never see or hear any of that in the movies no. depicting that. No, all you That's see the is first the I'd ever heard of that. Yeah. So they, they, well, they had to have all these animals, too, oxen and mules and horses, yeah. you know, for pulling the wagons. Yeah. So the fort would have been pretty quiet after they departed. The women probably visited each other and went about their daily duties until the news reached them in late June that Custer's command had fallen at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So they didn't know about it until when? Uh, June, and this was uh, May when they left. I see. I can't remember the exact date that the battle took place. I thought it was June 24th. Maybe I'm wrong. That that could be right. So anyway, uh, and finally they found out about it. So Libby Custer, uh, her heart no doubt breaking after learning the news of the fight, she picked up her shawl and accompanied Captain William McCaskey of the 20th Infantry, one of the men who had informed her of Custer's death, to visit the other woman, women at the fort and tell them about their husbands. You know, you say about when they heard about it, and then it was related back to the fort. I mean, it wasn't like picking up your cell phone, was it? No. this was. It a, took quite some time. Right. And then picture this. Here's Libby uh, having to go tell the other wives that their husbands are not coming home. Oh, wow. And I don't know how many wow. of those, but, you know, what a heartbreaking uh, scene that would have been. Oh, my. Anyway, once the sad duty had been carried out, Libby Custer returned to her own home where they held uh, family gatherings and social events. She packed her things and departed the fort, traveling to her family's home in Monroe, Michigan. Hmm. And she later later wrote that uh, uh, a wounded thing must hide, which I, I assume she meant that. You know, she was hurt pretty bad. And, and wanted to stay away from people. Yeah. yeah. And so Libby Custer would pick herself up and spend the rest of her life writing books that honored her husband's legacy. Hmm. So. Uh, Did she try to change his personality and persona? You know, there's. You know, there's a lot of stories about he was not a very nice person. There's, there's a lot of stories <laughs> regarding Custer. And. I would have to say that as his wife, she is going to remember the good things, wouldn't you think? I would, but uh, history doesn't depict him as a... Yeah, it sometimes paints a little different picture. So, Now, the area near the confluence of the Yellowstone and Missouri Rivers became the site of Fort Union. Now, this was a most important fur trading site on the upper Missouri during the 19th century. So the American Fur Company post became a key location for trading with members of several of the Indian tribes, including the Assiniboine, the Blackfeet, Plains, 
Fro, uh, Hidatsa, Mandan, Chippewa, and Indian women were at the post with their families to engage in trade. Some were painted by a guy by the name of George Catlin after his travel through the area in 1832. So, you know, a lot of the things we see... Now, where was this? Uh, uh, this was near... It was Fort Union. Which was... Which was near the, the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Missouri I'm Rivers. trying to figure out where that might... That be It's got to be up in uh, Montana. Yeah, on the border of Wyoming and Montana, wouldn't it? Somewhere, yeah. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, arguably the most important woman associated with Fort Union was Natawista, the daughter of two sons, a leader in the blood tribe of the Blackfoot Confederacy. She was born in 1825. She traveled with her father to the Fort Union trading post when she was about 15 years old. There she married Alexander Culbertson, and he was the chief trader at Fort Union. And this was common for this to happen. And you might say, well, she was only 15. But that, again, 14, 15, 16, they, a lot of them got married uh, at that age. And because trade was so important to the tribes, it was not uncommon for a headman or chief to forge relations with the fur traders through the arranged marriages of their daughters. So it happened. Now, Natawista would serve an important role at Fort Union. She had five children and assisted her husband. Again, he was the chief trader. Assisted him with trading duties. She served as a translator and a hostess. And she got some credibility as a diplomat bridging the cultures of the Indians and the whites. Hmm, I've heard that name. Yeah, yeah, and I think I did a story on her a long time ago. I, yeah, I believe you did. But as Indians, Sacagawea and Natawista had deep connections to the western lands and the lifestyles of their people, uh, which required them to adapt to all the changing uh, conditions. Now, Elizabeth... Uh, had fallen in love with George Armstrong Custer, and following their marriage, she willingly traveled with him to his assignments uh, in the West. So she was had to be a pretty brave, adventuresome woman. And tough. And tough, yeah. So now here's another one. Medora von Hoffman. Ah, they named the city of Medora after her. You're getting ahead of me, Zeb. I know, but I, I <laughs> fell behind at first. <laughs> okay. Now you're getting ahead of me. So... Okay, so Medora von Hoffman, the daughter of a wealthy New York banker, likely never expected she would live in the Wild West. While traveling in Europe, she met and married a wealthy French nobleman, the Marcus de Mores. He came with her to America and began learning about the American West. He saw the place as a land of opportunity and, and came to western North Dakota in 1833. The Marcus selected an area where the Northern Pacific Railroad crossed the Little Missouri River. He bought nearly 9,000 acres and near the original town of Little Missouri built a new town on the east bank of the river, naming it Medora. There you go. For his, now you know how that... Have you been there? No, I have it's not. It's a wonderful tourist town. Oh, okay. It really is. Yeah. They do a lot of national advertising. Okay. Well, the area had everything that the Marcus de Mora wanted and needed for his enterprise. There was plenty of water, grass, shelter for cattle, uh, direct shipping on the railroad to markets in the east, and ice on the river to use in a packing plant. Beside being European and wealthy, the Marcus was an entrepreneur. He had convinced his father-in-law to provide the financial backing necessary to start his own company, the Northern Pacific Refrigerator Car 
company. Oh, my. The business raised cattle, butchered them at the packing plant, and then shipped the meat to markets using these refrigerated rail cars to keep it fresh. Now, I didn't realize they had refrigerated rail cars clear back then. Now, what year was that? Uh, let's see. That would have been uh, uh, 1883. Oh, wow. 1883, 84, right in there. And that was because of the ice. Right, because they had the ice that they uh, chopped during the winter and then stored it somehow. And they get a lot of ice back there. (laughs) I would imagine. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, the operation lasted just three years, failing due to competition, partially because the eastern consumers did not like the taste of the range-fed beef. Really? But the Marcus had not... picky, picky, picky. (laughs) Yeah. But the Marcus had not pinned all his hopes and dreams on one business. In addition to ranching and feeding cattle, he raised sheep and horses. He had a freighting company and stagecoach line that linked Medora with Deadwood, South Dakota. And he established and, and operated ice houses along the route of the northern Pacific between Helena, Montana and Duluth, Minnesota. He used his refrigerated rail cars to ship not only beef, but also other goods, including salmon, from the West Coast to the East Coast. Now, that's a long ways. Oh, my. And Medora, uh, the wife, she managed the couple's 26-room summer home. It was called the Chateau de Morez. And it was built on a bluff overlooking the town that bore her name. And this home is now a North Dakota State Historic Site. Right. Now, another visitor... Uh, I think I know we're getting close to out of time. Uh, not a woman, but uh, another early resident of the area was actually uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and he came in 1883 to hunt buffalo. Before leaving the region, he bought a share of Chimney Butte Ranch, locally known as the Maltese Cross. Yes. Uh, and Roosevelt left North Dakota to return to New York, and of course his political career. But he was devastated by the wa- deaths of his mother and his wife actually within hours of each other. Uh, His baby daughter survived, but after the deaths of the women, Roosevelt returned to North Dakota, where he kind of expanded his ranch holdings. Didn't he, and I I better be quiet and let you finish, because I was going to ask you a question about Roosevelt. Uh, Okay, well, let me just finish this a little bit Okay, good. Cattlemen in the region where he was uh, brought more and more head of livestock to the area, and then disaster struck with yes. the severe winter That's it. in 1886 that yep. killed hundreds, yes. thousands of cattle, and they called it the Great Die-Up. Yep. That's what they called it. Yep. And it devastated a lot of the ranchers' operations, including Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yeah, that's yeah. the deal I was going to ask you yeah. about. Because I've got a book on this shelf someplace of all these shelves of books that talks about that ranch and the demise and the great winter they had, great winter, the severe winter they had that killed all the livestock. Yeah. And, you know, back there now, they have this Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Yes. Uh, 70,000 acres. Yep. And uh, during the summer, uh, now they have what they call the Medora Musical. Yep. Is performed in an outdoor amphitheater. They share stories about Roosevelt and uh, his time charging up San Juan Hill and uh, the Maltese Cross Cabin and the North Dakota Cowboy Hall of Fame. Go there if you get a chance. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, those are some of the more famous women that I'm going to guess a lot of people have heard about them. Absolutely. And, you know, that area I'm very familiar with. I've announced a lot of rodeos back in that country and everything. And uh, I urge anybody, if they're on a road trip, stop at Medora. 
Yeah, that, I mean, I had no idea. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot of places throughout our country where these places exist. These Why don't we take a road trip for a year and just do the program <laughs> on the road? <laughs> well, that could work. Yeah, would, you're not I, kidding. I would love to do that. Oh, my. Yeah. No, that's a great story about Roosevelt. Can you do more on that uh, Maltese Cross Ranch and I'll Roosevelt? I'll see what I can find. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Actually, uh, one of our listeners, Jeff, uh, sent me an email just yesterday, and he had a list of about 10 or 12 people, some I've heard of and some I haven't. And so I thank Jeff for sending some suggestions. And I, I appreciate hearing from listeners that uh, give me suggestions Absolutely. for stories. Yeah. God bless you, man. It's so good to have you back in the studio. And uh, great job this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. History. I'm just real proud to have him be a part of our program. Thank you very you much. Bet. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.